Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined, as always, by Kelly Weil. Kelly, how you doing? We're recording on the big day, historic day, Donald Trump going to the clink, going to the Hooskow. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm doing great. I'm kind of regretting our decision to record on Tuesdays. There's always something happening, an election, the indictment of a former president. So cruising along, anything could happen. I think that's the beauty of podcasting. One thing no one's talking about here is the possibility that Trump's going to get prison muscles. He's going (laughs) in, he's going to get ripped, and he's going to emerge tougher for 2024. He's going to have like some stick and poke tattoos under his (laughs) eye. It's going to be badass. Our first topic is, I have to say, this may be the dumbest thing we have talked about in the history of this podcast, (laughs) but we have to talk about it. But first of all, Kelly, do you know what it means to be smoking that Zaza? Yeah, I think I can intuit. I actually, I did give this a confirming Google. I found some good UK kind of grind hip hop tracks about smoking that Zaza, and I think I can intuit. So I learned about this a few years ago from Menswear Podcast, but (laughs) smoking that Zaza, it's smoking a high quality strain of marijuana. Now, the reason I bring this up is because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, has been accused of running a secret anime-themed burner account called Smoking That Zaza. Can you sort of flesh that one out for us? Yeah, unfortunately I can, because this is one of those things that you see in real time on Twitter when you're killing time on a Monday. You see it unfolding. It's like, oh man, this is going to be discourse. So Monday midday, some right-wing engagement farmer is tweeting at AOC or whatever, and he accidentally replies to a tweet that has a random anime account tagged in. He's like, oh, you're supporting Nazis, whatever. And this anime guy writes back. He goes, lol, what makes you think I did anything to support Nazis? You're delusional. Seek help. This, of course, is the pretty reasonable response of an anime Twitter guy. The right-wing engagement farmer sees that response and says, oh my god, this must be AOC responding to me because he doesn't understand that when you respond to a tweet that has somebody tagged, they get a notification. So he thinks this is AOC descending on him from this anime account. Now, is this fake? Yeah, obviously. People pointed this out from the moment it started getting any traction, but figures on the right immediately latched onto it. We've got like the Ian Miles Chung, we've got Marjorie Taylor Greene all speculating that maybe Zaza Smoka is AOC's burner account. I can't stress enough. People are going to say, this is so stupid. Why are they talking about this? This is gospel truth now on the right. Everyone believes this, okay? So this is an account called Zaza Smoka. 
And its handle is also Zaza Demon, and it's got some anime picture. And basically what happened here is that Zaza Smoka, which is an account with like, I don't know, a couple hundred followers before this happened, retweeted AOC criticizing libs of TikTok and saying, beat it, punk, do libs of TikTok. And so (laughs) because Zaza Smoka retweeted this, when this right-wing engagement farmer, who is someone I had never heard of with like 50,000 followers named Nico... This is one of these red-brown alliance guys. He like, he hangs out in the the kind of like Tulsi Gabbard wing I've encountered this guy. That was the vibe I was getting. This is a guy named Nico House who he has this picture of like he's got a goatee. He's kind of like I'm a truth teller type guy. His Twitter display name is Joe Biden hates black people. So that's where we're coming from here. So this guy, what happens is he replies to Zaza Smoker's retweet. So because of that, Zaza Smoker and AOC are both tagged. Zaza Smoker, I can't believe how often I'm saying that, then says, (laughs) beat it, buddy, this person as well. And he goes, holy smokes, guys, this is AOC's burner account. Now, this is sometimes how people get caught. I think Kevin Durant maybe got caught doing this, where essentially you haven't logged out of your burner account and you're replying and people get busted for various things. But this one is just total BS. Nevertheless, this blows up. And Zaza Demon slash Zaza Smoker, I will say, is also a pretty outspoken Twitter user. (laughs) They were previously sort of wishing death upon Matt Walsh of the Daily Wire over some transphobia he was doing. And so this idea that AOC is just chilling on Twitter being like, I'm smoking that Zaza and being like, someone should kill Matt Walsh, whatever. Particularly the Zaza thing, it had a kind of an appeal to it. It sounds like a thing kind of based fake world, fantasy world AOC might do. So this takes off. And so you have someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene tweet, this you AOC. Keep in mind, this member of Congress. Zaza Demon is your burner account? That is a disturbing name. Yes, that is demonic. So the name fits. I mean, these people are getting revved up over this. I mean, it's fake. Anyone could tell that it's fake. Yeah, absolutely. It was clearly fake from the moment it started. But what the right is doing is just like with every iteration of this stripping away contact. So now they're no longer quote tweeting the Nico House account, which clearly shows that he doesn't know how Twitter works. And he's just intuiting that somebody is tweeting at him. AOC is tweeting at him from a burner account. They're now just taking his gospel that this is her burner account and they're going through and they're looking for everything bad this random account has ever tweeted. They're stating that it is AOC and they're just quote tweeting each other. So there's this pile on, there's progressively less and less context going on. And eventually it reaches the level of conservative blogs, which I think is a kind of sludge puddle at the end of this channel. (laughs) Look, obviously there's no evidence that this is AOC's account because it's not her account, but the way they frame it is, let's find some headlines here. Gateway Pundit, did AOC use a secret Twitter account, Human Events, which is like... Human Events, to be honest, makes the Gateway Pundit look like the New York Times. I mean, Human Events is, which is now merged with the post-millennial, which is Andy Noe's outfit, which is like, you have to like get hit with a pan in the head before you can write for this (laughs) site. Yeah, Human Events, kind of bottom of the barrel. AOC accused of having a burner account. Well, who's doing the accusing it's you it's literally you there's no don't distance yourself don't give me that passive voice you are literally doing the accusing so it's fun to see how the sausage works see this happened all in the span of uh, maybe 90 minutes on a monday it's just great to see that they've got the playbook down and they're ready to roll it out i guess the larger input here the larger insight from this is that this just gives you an idea like how the sausage is made and how little meat needs to be in there for the sausage <laughs> to be made from the start one this nico house guy's just basic misunderstanding of Twitter, yet 
it is able to reach the point where Ben Shapiro's website is writing about it. The headlines they're using, it's a lot of like passive voice. These websites love being very, they're so poorly written that, and as we both do, we read these sites for a living. And often you're kind of like, wait, where is this coming from? Like, what's the origin of this? So you have headlines like AOC faces questions over mystery Twitter account. Well, yeah, from a total doofus. Yeah, questions from whom? It's you. The Human Events article, which was fascinating to me, it said, though this has not yet been verified, and it is not clear if Zaza Smoker is for sure AOC. Well, yeah, I would say so. I mean, sometimes when we write about, let's say, a politician getting a little wild with it, let's say like when Ted Cruz tweeted some porn, right? (laughs) So you kind of have to say, even if it is his Twitter account, often there are these kind of like, to be sure, paragraphs like someone with access to his Twitter account, right? Because we don't know exactly if it was Ted Cruz, but it probably was, or at least someone who works for him. (laughs) But in this case, there really is nothing at all. They just say, eh, it's probably AOC. Yeah, we can't disprove it because we don't have this person's fingerprints and a blood sample from them. So in the meantime, there's always an edge case that AOC is Zaza Smoker. The one thing I would add about this is there was also like, people might wonder, how are all these conservatives grappling with the Zaza aspect of this, right? Because they're not up on UK grime like Kelly is. So (laughs) how are they dealing with this? And so what they did is they figured out that, I guess, Alexandria, a nickname form of that is Zaza. I don't know. That seems like in a very kind of like <laughs> like roaring 20s sort of way. Calling herself Zaza Demon. <laughs> Zaza. <laughs> just can you imagine AOC is just like, I'm sick of being in Congress. I'm making Zaza Demon. I will say that AOC is a known League of Legends player, and I could see it in that context, in that context only. It's a baller username. It's an incredibly good username. So they were like, oh, this is the proof, all of the proof we need, because Zaza, Alexandria, there you go. So they did not really deal with the Zaza aspect of it. But for me, this was good because I'd had the Zaza thing kind of knocking around in my head and I really wanted to nail down for sure that it was about smoking weed, smoking high quality weed. And so now we all learned something today. All right. Cue the law and order music. The bar is slamming shut. It's the big day. Donald Trump's arraignment. As you mentioned, Kelly, the arraignment itself will take place in between our recording and this coming out. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy the circus. So what is going on today in New York? Oh, man, what a circus there is. Listen, I mean, we knew this was coming. There was already plenty of preemptive media criticism. But yeah, there's been for the past day or so wall to wall coverage of Trump getting in the car to go to the plane and the plane to land in New York for him to go and get arraigned today. Now, we're not going to get much detail from the arraignment itself. It's reportedly no cameras, can't really go in the courtroom. There's reportedly going to be no mugshot. So we're really making do with the scraps here. The fallout from the side of this case, which tends to just be a lot of loud right wing hype. There was a lot of talk about whether there are going to be mass protests over Trump's arrest. He actually called for himself when he leaked this news, broke the news a couple weeks ago that he was going to get arrested. And for what it's worth, I haven't seen a lot of big protest activity. The largest thing is actually ongoing as we record. Marjorie Taylor Greene is having some kind of event in Lower Manhattan with the New York Young Republicans Club. Now, I have to say those Young Republican Club events are very seldom a big rally of Republican stalwarts. They're usually more like 
somebody with a kind of the, the speech cadence of a supervillain goes up and talks at a podium. <laughs> There's about three supporters and 50 press crowded around it. That's where Marjorie Taylor Greene is. I think right now we've got our colleague Noah Kirsch. He's on the scene. He's covering. He says it's about protesters to reporters seems to be about a one to five ratio. So that's where we're at. I'm glad you said the circus because that's kind of the scene right now. Yeah, I mean, George Santos showed up. And what I love about this is that, I mean, George Santos, this is 100% him being put up to this by his like little memester staff, who, by the way, are also involved in the New York Young Republicans oh, yeah. Club. It's like a one-to-one corollary. <laughs> they were definitely like, George, it'll be so epic if you show up. And then he shows up and he's kind of like, why is everyone trying to talk to me? But like, imagine you're Donald Trump. I mean, you want this to look like you're like Han Solo getting frozen in carbonite, right? I mean, <laughs> he wants the perp walk. He wants the handcuffs, all this stuff. And then you have George Santos just out there with the Benny Hill music playing. And he's just like, hey, remember me? I'm the criminal. I'm a... <laughs> it's kind of hurting the vibes that I think Trump wants to go for. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's like dignified crime and there's George Santos crime. Like George Santos is being accused of like stealing someone's credit card in Brazil. Anyone got any dogs whose <laughs> medical bills I can steal? Or whatever. Let me hold your jewelry. Like this is not the defense team that you really want. I also think it's funny that Marjorie Taylor Greene is sort of preemptively sparring with New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who mentioned in a speech something pretty benign, like MTG, please behave when you visit. Now she's on Twitter saying, sir, are you threatening me? I just think all of this is a little funny in the context of Marjorie Taylor Greene also repeatedly going on the record calling for a national divorce, as we discussed last week, complaining that out-of-state ATF agents were conducting a routine investigation in Georgia. This is not very national divorce of you to come to this blue city and be annoying. It is interesting who's drawn to these things. I guess Marjorie Taylor Greene, I feel like she was kind of going for sort of a statesman-like quality during the Kevin McCarthy Stuff and I feel like she's back to the stunts. I guess that makes sense. But speaking of stunts, one thing I have to say about this Trump thing, I find it really funny that Ron DeSantis was basically willing to cause a constitutional crisis to defend Trump, that he came out because initially he was like, well, I don't know. Seems a little political, but then again, maybe he shouldn't be paying off porn stars. And then he comes out and he says, Florida will not participate in this extradition. Like, essentially, if he wants to hunker down at Mar-a-Lago, the Florida State Police will protect him, all this stuff. And then Trump just goes, I'll go back. So Trump really sort of denied DeSantis their big moment. You can almost see the political scheming behind this decision, right? Trump wants some kind of bold statement from the DeSantis camp, which kind of snubbed him earlier, probably asked him something about, you know, will you stand for this? DeSantis makes his big patriot stance and Trump's like, I'm just going willingly. I do think we should touch on how much Trump is leaning into the spectacle, how much he's actually making it worse. There's reporting out from Rolling Stone saying that Trump was offered to just do this whole thing remotely, do a Zoom arraignment. He said, absolutely no, I'm going to be there in person. He's always been a showman. There's reporting indicating that he was pretty excited about the possibility of having a mugshot. His staff reportedly mulled putting it on like merchandise, t-shirts and hats, all kinds of that thing. You can imagine him kind of cheesing, practicing this mug in the mirror. And it sounds like he's not actually going to get a mugshot taken. So this is a guy who's he knows that this is a spectacle. He loves spectacle. He lives for drama. And so, of course, he wasn't going to hunker down to Mar-a-Lago. He's going to go back to his old stomping grounds and make a scene. So, Kelly, what's your take on the lack of protests? I mean, this is really, we're talking about an ex-president here who's getting arrested. And you look down in Florida for his convoy, and it's, I don't know, you had maybe a couple dozen people out and about in New York. As you said, it's really sad. Why aren't people coming out? I think it's a combination of things. One is purely logistical. It's really hard to hold a protest in downtown Manhattan. Like, the streets are narrower than Capitol hallways at some places. You're going to 
have the QAnon shaman ac- accidentally like running into a Chase bank or something. It's just really <laughs> logistically difficult. I do think, though, there is a broad fear on the right of being perceived as doing another January 6th, right? I mean, that stuff really spooked them, even though they are elevating these January 6th martyrs or what they call people who are in jail right now. So I don't think they want to be seen as kicking off another one of those. It's also just I don't know that many people want to be seen as jeopardizing Trump's chances at having like a fair and normal trial if people, I don't know, storm the courthouse or get him embroiled in something else. I do think there is some actual interest in letting him go through the case. They think he's going to be vindicated. They think he's going to get a cool mugshot out of it. So a lot of people are just watching this. Yeah, I want to hit on that sort of January 6th thing. I mean, the idea that January 6th was a setup by federal provocateurs is so popular on the right and it's blasted out all the time on Fox News that I think this is really depressing the turnout for anything that maybe isn't just like a sanctioned Trump rally. This idea, when I go on the Donald, for example, the forum, every time someone's like, we got to get out in the streets, we got to save Trump. Someone's saying, good luck, Fed, or this guy glows, all this kind of stuff. I mean, so the idea that I think that's a really big aspect of it, that anyone who wants to sort of do a spontaneous or sort of a not just official like sit in an airplane hangar and see Trump talk kind of rally that that is somehow a scam. Absolutely. And I think that's evidenced by the people, the few protesters who actually are out there right now at the Marjorie Taylor Greene event. It's grim. I'm going to tell you there is uh, somebody flying a Trump or death flag. There's a lady wearing a Q shirt and a jacket depicting Trump as a bullfighter. She's got about 10 media around her because there's frankly not too many other people around. So this is who they're pulling. It's not January 6th crowds. It's the people who decide to wake up kind of early on a Tuesday, mosey on down there, shout at a couple press and probably go home. Okay, Kelly. Well, while Trump was on his way to New York on Monday, there's some troubling news out of Tennessee. What's going on down there? Yeah, absolutely. So Tennessee, obviously, site of that horrific shooting in Nashville early last week. After that shooting, quite a few Democratic lawmakers in Tennessee participated in a protest at the state house. Three in particular helped lead chants, really benign things like gun reform now. Most of the participants or many were children. Everybody participating in, I think, very calm and constitutionally protected speech. But that's not how Republican lawmakers in the state house saw it. Yesterday, the Republicans in the Tennessee House, where they actually have a supermajority, introduced resolutions to expel three of their Democratic colleagues for participating in this protest. Now, what are they saying? They're saying that these Democrats had an insurrection at the state house, that they were uh, disgracing their office, that they were putting people in jeopardy. And now they have actual legislation on the books to kick their fellow lawmakers out of office. That's crazy. I mean, lawmaker is supposed to be this person is just incredibly corrupt, all this stuff. But instead, it's eh, we didn't really like your protest. We're giving you the boot. Yeah, absolutely. I do think it's interesting. We're talking about the shadow of January 6th looming over the Trump arraignment. Well, there's very much an effort to create an equal and opposite effect on the left, saying that any kind of left wing protest is inherently dangerous, is insurrectionary. It's grounds for dismissal. When this is, I mean, you see a thousand of these protests a year, right? It's extremely commonplace. I would say it's extremely justifiable given the deaths in Nashville last week. And so 
These resolutions, they passed on Monday on the party line. It was a 72 to 23 vote in favor of expelling these lawmakers. They'll have a final vote on those expulsions on Thursday. Democrats, frankly, don't really have any grounds to block them. They just don't have the votes. But I mean, this is, I think, really dangerous territory here. This is talking about expelling or impeaching lawmakers for no real reason than them doing their jobs. And even now, these lawmakers are being treated almost as if they are no longer in office, right? Their Republican colleagues are calling them the former representative. They had their building access badges deactivated, their parking rescinded. This is especially cruel in one case where one of the representatives used the mobility scooter, got locked in the building parking. She couldn't access it. So I'd call it showmanship. I'd call it a weird stunt, but it actually has really, I think, grim implications for people's right to have representation in that state. You're making a great point here, positioning this as part of the kind of the broader authoritarian turn in state houses across the country. How do you think that ties into the, also this week, we have this Supreme Court election in Wisconsin. Take me there. What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny. I think all eyes are definitely on the Trump arraignment. I think in many cases, rightfully so. It's history. It's unprecedented. But in terms of actual like consequences for the American people, this election going on today in Wisconsin probably is more significant. This is an election in a swing state. It could determine the future of how the state's districts are gerrymandered. It could determine the future of abortion rights in the state. Specifically, there is a vote for a statewide judge who wants to put abortion rights up to a referendum that those rights would almost certainly win. And so in advance of this election, you have Republican candidates and lawmakers going on record saying, yeah, if I win and this judge wins, we're just going to impeach her. That's it. There's no real grounds for it other than she's just a liberal. And I think, again, that's pretty dangerous territory where there doesn't need to be any kind of crime. There doesn't need to be any kind of even accusation. It's just like, well, I don't like your politics. Out you go. So the Supreme Court candidate who could win this week, they're saying they're just going to impeach her if she wins? Oh, yeah, that's absolutely That's it. crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy to see that just being put out there so openly, right? Listen, I, just this morning, I was driving behind a car with an impeach 46 bumper sticker. And it's like, well, sure, I'll, on what grounds, right? This doesn't even pretend to have a grounds. Laptop like, from well, hell. That's right. That's right. <laughs> this doesn't even kick at any kind of justification. It's just like, well, don't like him. Out you go. And to bring this back to Tennessee, this happened a couple of years after Tennessee Republicans refused to even contemplate spelling a member who'd been accused of child sexual abuse. Right. So these people have the means to make these expulsions. It's just a matter of whether they're going to do them and why they're going to do them. And increasingly, it seems like on the right, there's an effort to just roll them out when you don't like the person's politics. All right, Will, who is our guest this week? All right. We've got a returning champ this week. We've got Semaphore Politics reporter Dave Weigel. He crisscrosses the country covering campaigns. And he's a guy who also has his pulse on conservative media. So I think he'll be a perfect guest for us. He's had a lot of stories recently. One about how Jack Posobiec has become the king of conservative influencers. He's got another about the Koch brothers. He's got all kinds of stuff to discuss. So I'm happy to have him on. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Fevered dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. 
Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right, this week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by returning guest Dave Weigel. He's a national political reporter at Semaphore. Dave, welcome to the pod. Good to be here. Thank you. So as we're speaking to you, Trump is soon to be headed to the big house. What is your take on the coverage? You're an astute observer of political media. I think I'm an astute hater of a lot of the media. (laughs) I think I've been one of the people who's uselessly adding to this conversation by asking whether cable needs to cover every turn of Trump's plane on the way to the courthouse. Like, it's obviously news. It's one of those news items where you know what will happen. It's just three days of lawyers going on TV explaining what's going to happen. So I zone out and I cover other things. But I mean, in paying attention to it, yeah, this is something that even many Republicans before they built their careers around Donald Trump predicted would probably happen if he ever continued in politics, that he had made so many decisions that were legally specious that he was going to get caught in one of them. This is one that I'm surprised, given how this is the one that a lot of people who don't like Trump think is the flimsiest. The Republican response has been pretty rote for what I've seen. I mean, just the every time I see people making the if they can arrest the former president, they can arrest anyone argument. I just think, oh, you didn't really put much effort into that, did you? Like, logically, what is the difference between no one is above the law and if they can arrest Donald Trump, they can arrest you? Yeah, I just said no one's above the law. I get it. Like, I get the concept. Let's build on that. I think you're onto something with this idea that, I mean, it has been a lot of like either who cares that she shouldn't be charged over this or the kind of the classic, like, they're not coming after Trump, they're coming after you. Yes. And something that, again, only happens with the presidency, with the sort of sovereignty we grant to a president or head of state. When a governor goes to jail, they can drum this up. I mean, you saw this with Eric Greitens in his failed comeback run in Missouri. You see this with Rod Bogoyevich, who was pardoned by Trump and is trying to, I think, successfully (laughs) get himself into the coverage here by saying any political investigation indictment is meddling in politics. It is very there for you, but not for me. Because the example a lot of people go back to is what would have happened had Hillary been indicted, all that. If you scratch, the difference ends up being, well, there's something special and different about the president. The president has the ability to declassify documents by looking at them. The president is the representative of the country. He was our head of state. If they can arrest him, they can arrest for anything. It's gotten away from, I think, what is a some stand-up argument, which is, can a president in office be arrested for something? Would that drag down the process of government? To a more, I think, silly argument that there's something different about a former president compared to a sitting governor or former governor or Congress. You do not see the same rending of garments when anyone else in politics may have done something illegal and gets collared for it, right? You only see it for a former president. And when it comes to Trump, I think many things have been said, you know, he said again about his connection to the Republican base. I do think maybe we'll get to this. It is interesting to me that this particular indictment is over something that is so seamy that plays the names. There's a congressional candidate from Western Tennessee who does what Trump did and paid off hush money to stop somebody who had an affair with from talking about it in a way that would hurt his campaign. Yes, that would be prosecuted. <laughs> I mean, John Edwards did something not dissimilar. He was prosecuted after stuff being a candidate. How do Republicans justify this when it comes to Trump? I don't think it's that hard to. Beyond just the idea that this is unconstitutional, this is threatening all the people who support him, yada, yada. The idea that Donald Trump, who delivers for our movement and for our faith, etc., did something unethical. There's a lot of excuse making ready to go for that. I mean, like God often uses flawed vessels to do his will. So anything Donald Trump did 
in the service of attaining and keeping power at currently in the service of getting back into power in 2024, like whatever he needs to do, you can go back and justify it. You don't need to get into the details of how gross it is or how unethical it is, even though you would absolutely do that if it was happening to somebody with a lower status or somebody from the other party. So, Dave, a lot of the Trump camp has kind of taken on this tactic of like, oh, we're not mad. We're actually laughing about this, right? There was talk about using the Trump mugshot as merchandising stuff. I mean, that's inevitable. You just you can't go to like a bar in North Jersey without like the Sinatra mugshot. Like mugshots (laughs) are cool. Yeah, not a chance. I mean, listen, electorally, right? There's a good chance that Trump does run against the DeSantis challenge. What do you think an indictment here actually does to his primary chances? Well, I'm glad you said primary chances. You do need to separate those because One thing, and this is, I think, where some of the media privileging of MAGA voices can distract you. Most people in the country do not think about Donald Trump all the time. Most people in the country don't like him. Most people in the country don't like Joe Biden, but they're not being forced to weigh in on his legal issues. When they are, they usually tune out (laughs) when it comes to the Hunter investigation, etc. I mean, there is polling on this, and I feel, I think polling made a comeback in 2022. I think it's a bit more accurate. Polling is very clear that most people think, well, this might be political, but it does seem like it's pretty unethical what Trump did, and they don't have a problem with him being charged. They think he should run again. Quinnipiac put a poll out last week, and it was 57% of Americans thought being criminally charged should disqualify Trump from running. Again, a thing that I don't think would be controversial if you remove the names. Let's say it's 2007 and Barack Obama is charged for an identical crime. I don't think people would say, well, can we wash this off? Can we give him this mulligan? They would say, no, I don't, I'm not comfortable with the president who's facing criminal investigation survey. You don't have to go that far back. In 2016, people are running against Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. And they say the fact that he's going to be on the hook for this Trump University trial during the election or after the election is going to be a political problem for us. Then he wins and then they decide that it isn't. Again, when you become president, when you have the power both as an incoming president, you have a kind of happen for life. You can argue, well, now this is a persecution against somebody who represents the American will. You've seen some very purple <laughs> versions of this and how Trump re- represents our will. But I'm interested in how Republicans are at the moment just kind of waiting for this to be over and talking as if it is self-evident to most of the country that Donald Trump is innocent, that this is he's being railroaded, that he'll become more popular as a result. The polling suggests that he will not be. The polling suggests that he remains got popularity in the 30s. He's more popular with white men without college degrees than any other demographic group. He's really unpopular with people who voted Republican until 2016. All that is true. I have not seen evidence, even just kind of conversation with voters of anyone who says I was kind of off of the Trump train and I'm back on only because of this, somebody whose vote is gettable. I have seen that of somebody who maybe was going to vote for Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis and might vote for Donald Trump, but no offense, but like somebody who's going to vote for Ron DeSantis for president and can be swayed by this was going to be a Republican voter in 2024. So I think it is helpful for him in the primary for some of what we've been talking and hearing about. It is obviously helpful to see the reactions of Republicans challenging him. You just have a combination of light criticism, which is judged as not enough criticism of Alvin Bragg from Ron DeSantis. You had, I thought, an underratedly funny reaction from Nikki Haley, which is literally just retweeting a video of her from a week earlier discussing what might happen to Trump and condemning it. Then you have Vivek Ramaswamy saying this is a threat against democracy. Everyone should be condemning this, et cetera, et cetera. I think he will benefit from that. I think Haley will not benefit at all from looking as if she's not defending Trump hard enough. And then the person who just is not really happy with their potential choices in 2024, but is willing to vote for Joe Biden. Yeah, they're going to still vote for Joe Biden. There is a reason I think that Republicans are investigating the business ties of the Biden family. I don't think they are terribly worried if they came out with a bill of charges against Hunter Biden, that Joe Biden would be guaranteed the presidency. The logic when applied to the other camp, it falls apart immediately. So I guess that's what confuses me is why 
the people who think it would be great for Republicans that Hunter could go down, who think, in fact, that Biden might have lost the 2020 election and more people be aware of the Hunter story, then turn around and say, well, if there are charges against Trump, that's going to help him. No, it's not. It's going to help with Republicans, not anybody else. Dave, you had another story in Semaphore recently about you were surveying the state of the right wing influencers or the right wing Twitter celeb field ahead of the primary. What did you find out? Well, the universe has changed. It's always changing. You never step into the same Twitter feed twice. Me and my colleague Shelby talked to a bunch of conservative operatives, GOP operatives, just kind of saying, like, who would you say can drive attention? Who do people take seriously on the right as a tastemaker right now? And the answers were Jack Posobia came up all the time, somebody that Will's very familiar with and listeners probably very familiar with. Somebody who has just, if you go back and audit how often somebody has been wrong about stuff or said that they have internal sources telling them, he has like a sub-Krasenstein level of reliability, but is a very colorful commentator who's on top of things immediately. You had just generally right side broadcasting has the power to advance things. Newsmax has the power to advance. There are influence. And this is something that was kind of percolating as we wrote that is worth watching is you have further right folks like Stu Peters, like Alex Jones, in some cases, Stephen Crowder, Matt Walsh, I would put in a different category because he's not a conspiracy guy. He's a just devout kind of Old Testament Christian. Those guys can drive narratives that Republican legislators respond to. And what is not driving those narratives is what was on Fox, what was on the bulwark. Now, things that Tucker show, I should separate that out. Things that get on Tucker show, he has the ability to shape debate. These guys don't. I think these are facts that, that are might be familiar to somebody who watches this media all the time and looks at who is booking Josh Hawley, booking Ted Cruz, getting them to talk. I think we wanted to freeze and polarize it because we were saying, OK, there's a competitive primary. Who is the ability to tell people who is credible and who isn't or if a story is real and worth believing or if it isn't? So that's some of the people I mentioned. And. What one takeaway from it was that the Trump influencers just have a bigger reach and larger aiming choir. I mean, led by Posobiec, but there are pro-DeSantis, anti-Trump voices in social media, in the kind of commentary sphere, guys on the Claremont Institute DeSantis orbit. They don't have the same ability. Like it really is the conservative media post-2015 is influenced by Trump to the extent where like people try to sound like him. He is reliable content. Other people are not. Stories about Trump that are for him are not believed. Stories about DeSantis that are negative. Once he became a competitor to Trump, were less believed. So you know, guys like Alex Bruzewitz, this Republican influencer who used to tweet a little bit supportively of DeSantis, now is a full-time DeSantis is a short, white, shrimp boot-wearing sellout. This is the guy who was recently arguing with DeSantis people at CPAC saying, like, look, you guys are all wearing heels because you're so short and stuff. I mean, this is really highly elevated discourse there. Yes, but taking that cue from Trump, like the, I'm going to make fun of you, I'm going to embarrass you about how you look, you're falling for this, like, weak, watered-down version of conservatism. Those guys have a lot more influence because they're Trump allies, and Trump pays attention to this. I mean, Trump kind of checks in on who is relevant on the right. People around him know that he pays attention to Basobiec. I mean, he didn't invite Kanye at all to Mar-a-Lago without a reason. I mean, Charlie Kirk has this power. Some of these guys, I think, were gettable for an anti-Trump electable MAGA candidate, really only DeSantis, maybe six months ago, and are less gettable now just because... It's kind of ironic. I mean, DeSantis is, I wouldn't say a victim of his own success, but because he's so successful and has no opposition in Florida that matters because it's backfired in some ways, but like Disney has trampled them underfoot. It looked like he can pass more conservative bills, but he has less effective enemies. And one thing that we're finding is this St. Sebastian factor that Trump has, where he's constantly not just absorbing attacks, but talking about how nobody absorbs worse and more unfair attacks than him. That does emotionally bond people to him, and it, it generates more news and more outrage that as we were tracking these influencers and seeing who mattered, 
they were just commenting a lot more on Trump's enemies and why they were wrong and why they're afraid of him than they were on DeSantis's victories. Like DeSantis's victories felt very six months ago. So, Dave, we're talking about like influence from the media sphere. But one thing that I come across when reporting a lot is people say this conservative organization, that conservative organization, they're getting Coke money, right? This is all being funded by Coke. You've done some reporting recently on the Coke brothers and sort of the state of their shop. I mean, what kind of influence do they have right now in conservative politics? They have a lot of influence in places where this mega fight is not happening. The Cokes are very relevant. In the 2015 primary, there's a competition to see who in the Coke network is going to get their support. So you have Republican candidates, not Trump, showing up to Coke donor meetings to pitch themselves. Trump separates himself from that. Some people from the Coke orbit go to work for Trump or work for Mike Pence after he's the nominee. The ones who stay have a different vision of what can be usefully done in this network. This is now the Stand Together network of Coke organizations. This is Fair to say the wealthiest libertarians in the world now is this Charles David David Koch is dead and a network of kind of like minded pro business libertarians who donate to them and their causes. So some of the most mega friendly people leave in 2015, 16 and 17. The ones who are left want to get wins and want to focus Libre, the Koch Latino outreach organization, is really interested in getting a dreamer deal done. The other stand together network stuff is very interested in criminal justice reform. So they advocate for, and then in the case of criminal justice reform, achieve like libertarian goals that at that time, at least on when it comes to criminal justice reform, that Trump can be swayed on. But these are not conservative movement goals. These are not MAGA goals. This is not the concern of the white voter without a college degree. And what I was hearing is that, one, they have lost some people through brain drain. David Koch is dead. The people who are around Charles Koch are a bit more interested in social justice than they are in conservatism. To the extent where Brian Hooks, who's kind of Charles's secondhand man, right-hand man at the Koch organizations, writes this op-ed during the George Floyd protests about the need to end systemic racism. So they were kind of all in on this vision of using government to liberate people, to have them live their better lives. Increasingly at odds, I just described the mega voter, but at odds with this new ethos of the Republican Party that, no, you cannot coexist with the cathedral, with the liberal mindset that's permeating government and media and all that. When you take power, you need to like get rid of all of the bureaucrats and you need to use the power to roll back things like, go through all of them, but drag queen story power. That's not where the Cokes are. That's not where the leadership of this organization is. So this year, they put out this memo after their donor meeting in Palm Springs about how they're going to focus their Republican primary on electing somebody represents the future, that they can't have weak candidates, like all of it, like unless you just woke up yesterday, all the references in this memo are to Donald Trump. We can't have a Donald Trump-like candidate. So they redirect their resources into, they say, turning up more conservative voters to get a non-Trump candidate nominated. Between the lines, does that mean Ron DeSantis? That's what everyone thinks. And that's been the conflict is some people have left. Some people just say these guys don't have the pull they used to. Actually, I hate saying some people say, by some people, I mean people who've worked with the Cokes with, on a government, on a contract, they're strategists, they're in Republican parties. One of the people I talked to when I was reporting this, who had been very involved in the Coke networks, kind of at the Tea Party height, was like, they're seen as the people who want to, like, open the borders and get criminals out of jail. Like, that's their brand with MAGA. So how do they do this? How does AFP, which is the most grassroots political organization in this Coke network, how do they continue doing what they're good at, which is organizing people for local politics? Let's stop this high speed rail line from being built, et cetera. How do they remain relevant in GOP politics? They're figuring that out. The thought a lot of people had when they launched this campaign was, gosh, in this modern Republican Party, what they're trying to do is they have to change the electorate if they want to be relevant. They have to find a lot of conservatives who are 
with them on these anti-MAGA issues. And they were very skeptical it could happen in that, like, there were some people who were incredibly skeptical thinking, I don't know how they can be relevant even like in a year. Some people who are just more skeptical saying, well, they're going to say this, but I think they're saying this because they're losing so many people that they need to get involved in the election in some way. Everyone who has drifted away is thinking, what is the point of this sort of activism when you're either ineffectively losing to a Trump mega candidate or you wind up with a Trump mega candidate in the general election and you have a choice between them and a Democrat? Like the most you can do is get a little bit involved in the primary, try to stop that from happening. And that's like a lot of doubt. That they have the clout to do it anymore. They have the money, but they do not have the brand they used to for all those reasons I mentioned. Dave, who are some up and coming right wing personalities or media outlets? Let's that uh, our listeners should be keeping an eye on. We mentioned a couple just now, Alex Bruzewitz. I would say Twitter is going through it in a few ways, but at the moment, the Elon era, I'm going to own a blue check, even though it means now that I just paid Elon money, not that I'm important. It's still worth following those guys because they, I think they filled some space and they've gotten, take advantage of some changes to the algorithm. So like Matt Couch, not super famous, I think, outside of D.C., writes like the D.C. Patriot. Big Seth Rich guy. Yeah, he was a big Seth Rich guy. You're familiar with him. He's now got 600,000 followers. He is able to push stuff into the narrative, into the mainstream pretty quickly. I mentioned Stu Peters before, someone else who is just some conservatives I talked to. Like I talked to Ian Miles Strong about him and he can't stand him. He thinks he's just a racist who is taking people's videos and putting racist themes on them. He does have influence. I mean, he's able to kind of splash things into, again, just get him in front of people who were not consuming this mainstream media as it is. Like the way that the videos and the East Palestine coverage in Ohio, I think, was generally good. Like, it was good that people were asking questions about what happened, media was showing up. But he kind of elevated what was happening in East Palestine by, like, linking videos of things exploding with this narrative that media were being arrested for covering it, that you were not seeing this on TV because they were hiding it from you. Not actually true, but that's, I mean, whenever I'm told, here's some information that's being denied from me if I watch TV, yeah, I do want to click it. I'd say those, like, Couch, Bruzewitz, but some of these guys also were self-starters with kind of their own podcasts, their own shows, like Terry Schilling of the American Principles Project has some of that in the American Principles Project. These are, I think they are most famous at the moment for these campaigns that have not been electorally successful, but are successful in Republican legislatures, warning to limit transgender care for minors, to take gender surgery and hormones out of Medicaid and healthcare. He's pretty influential in finding something and bouncing it up too. But you have to, it's really the kind of thing where I think you need to check in every few months to see who has paid for Twitter Blue and who hasn't, who is relevant, who has is now seen as a sellout because they didn't tweet enough about Trump. I'd say those guys though, I mean, if you're just trying to see like, what's MAGA up to? And you follow Pasobiak, Couch, Schilling to an extent, you follow Charlie Kirk, you probably Stephen Crowder, you follow Matt Walsh, you could follow nothing else and you get a pretty good idea of what the movement is discussing from those accounts. Yeah, no, totally. So, Dave, you mentioned this influence in electoral politics. And right now we're talking about Trump arraignment, arrest, whatever. But this is ongoing on the same day as there's a pretty consequential Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. And I think you've covered that. Can you just kind of run down like what's the stake of Wisconsin today? Yeah. So Wisconsin has a four or three conservative majority on the Supreme Court that has most importantly for, I think, electoral reasons, has upheld Republican-drawn maps that make it almost impossible for Democrats to win the legislature, which makes it impossible for them to draw congressional maps, which makes it sometimes impossible for the governor, who Democrat, who just won a second term, to confirm his cabinet appointees. So the stakes in Wisconsin, you'll hear a lot of abortion because that's the main issue Democrats are running on, because by far the threat of a conservative Wisconsin Supreme Court upholding the state's 
1849 abortion ban is very visceral for people. But the stakes are really, will there be a court in place where if Democrats bring the lawsuit against the 2021 gerrymander, a court that will overturn it? If there is a 4-3 majority, it absolutely will. I mean, every judge on this court is on the record. On those other cases, Judge Janet Protasewicz. What was in my head is that one of the Republicans, a judge who was attacking her, kept calling her pro to say which when I was at the event. So I, that was what was placed up in my head. But anyway, if Jan Perosewicz wins, she has made it very clear that she will do this. There is some Republican fulmination about trying to get her to recuse herself or even impeaching her if she wins. There is a state Senate race in Wisconsin also today where if Republican wins, they'll have a supermajority on, in, on paper. They could try to impeach her. No one rules that out. I mean, nobody rules out the press the idea that Republicans could say, well, because this Democratic back candidate with 8.8 million in the end from Democrats said how she'd vote on gerrymandering, she's too biased. We should get rid of her. But probably not. What really Democrats want to happen is they win this race. And then they can bring a few things in front of the court where they know how it really would rule. And look, this is an eternal pointing Spider-Man meme. This is what Republicans do in Texas. This is like Ken Paxton's entire career at this point is finding something he doesn't like and getting like Reed O'Connor, a judge who reliably will rule with conservatives to just rule on it and say, oh, OK, this unconstitutionally did this with preventative measures of Obamacare literally last week. So there's a lot of protesting too much going on about this. But that's basically the idea. And if the Republican Daniel Kelly wins, there will be a Republican majority on the court that will stay in place for years. The terms are 10 years so that he will be on there now. There'll be chances to change the makeup of the court every couple of years in it for another 10 year term. But this is the chance Democrats have really been mobilizing around since 2020. If you talk to Democrats in Wisconsin, talk to the party chair, they lost race in 2018. Because of that, this is their first chance to flip the court. The important thing about 2018, I should say, is that the Democrats wanted to flip the court as soon as possible. In 2019, they had a chance to elect a liberal to one of these seats and the conservative now part of this majority won. The reason that everyone agrees on this, why that conservative won, is that the turnout was nothing special. High turnout in this election would be something like 40% of the vote. But what Republicans did in the final stretch was they put out a mailer to Republicans who usually don't vote in these elections, the lower propensity voters, but people who vote for president all the time. And they sent the mail that said... Remember what they did to Brett Kavanaugh. That's what they're trying to do to our nominee, Brian Hagedorn. Out-of-state liberal activists like the ones who tried to defeat Brett Kavanaugh are against this. So they polarized it, and it works very well. Democrats' own polling was that they were going to win. They ended up losing. The message they took was, okay, there really is no downside to just saying we are political. We are going to act in this way if we win. And if you are a Democrat, you should vote for our candidate because they will deliver on things that you like. I mean, Janet Protasewicz explicit about that. Like, yes, I my values are pro-choice. Everything that you care about is going to come before the court. Here is how I look at it. She does not hide things. And Daniel Kelly has not been as hardcore partisan in the race in that way. I'm not trying to wait it. He has made it clear that he is a conservative. Like his mailer calls him a conservative. He has worked with Wisconsin great to life. He's clearly Republican. He's backed by Republicans. Scott Walker appointed him. But his argument to all voters has been less, I'm a Republican who'll vote their way, and more, my opponent, Janet Protasewicz, let these criminals out of jail too early. Not getting into the details of the rape cases, but if you have seen any ad in any state, district attorney or attorney general, it's that kind of ad. It is, this person let criminals out of jail who then went on to commit more crimes. It is so explicit that Kelly's campaign actually put out a ad just modeled after the Willie Horton ad in 1988. Like, same color, same font. Same pictures of the candidates, etc. The only thing they didn't do is they didn't put up a picture of the criminal 
who had committed this crime but was let out of jail by the Democratic judge. That is the one thing I guess it's modulated since 1988 is there are second thoughts if you put like a black convict's face in the middle of your TV ad. Apart from that, it's the same thing. So it's a Democrat saying, hey, this is a state that's divided, but we want fair maps and this is the only way to get them. We're divided, but we all want legal abortion and this is the only way to get that. Republicans are saying, well, of course they're saying that, but this judge is soft on crime. Final thing I'll say about that is that there will not be criminal cases that get up to the Supreme Court. I mean, this is another pattern of these elections. There are not going to be many people who commit a sexual offense and then their case goes up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. That's not what it does. That is a question here. It's less about can polarization work? I think for Democrats, the question is, can you polarize the race around what a court is going to do? And for Republicans, how powerful is the threat of crime? Can you like how many elections can you win? by warning that the Democrats soft on crime, even if the Democrats not necessarily going to be dealing with it. Those are the stakes. But if Democrats do win this, Wisconsin changes a lot. I mean, it's like Wisconsin basically becomes a place where if Democrats right now are losing, there is a sympathetic court that can sue. And if Democrats get a redistricting case, which they affirm, which goes their way, as early as 2024, you could have an election where Wisconsin, which now has a GOP near supermajority, you can have an election where it's competitive, where Democrats maybe flip the legislature, maybe Republicans win, but only by a few votes. That would change a lot. That would be, you know, this state that is at this point a huge outlier in the upper Midwest. I mean, it's surrounded on all sides by states that have legalized marijuana and passed abortion through the Constitution. Um, it would change because you'd have to have a court as a backstop st- preventing things like gerrymandering that keep Republicans in this locked-in state of power. Well, Dave, it's certainly one to watch. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, our guest has been Dave Weigel. He's a national political reporter at Semaphore. Dave, where can people find your stuff? At semaphore.com, there is a newsletter called Americana that goes out a couple times a week that's by me reported from kind of around the country. I went to both Wisconsin and Chicago to write about races there last week. So yeah, semaphore, I guess I should spell it, S-E-M-A-F-O-R.com, because depending on what language you speak, the actual word is spelled differently. All right. Well, Dave, thanks so much. All right. And it is time for Fresh Hell. Will, what terrible things do you have from the Twitter minds this week? Okay, so this week, this is something I've been meaning to talk about for a while, but it's 15-minute cities and sort of the way this idea has become twisted in the right-wing media. Kelly, are you up on this 15-minute cities thing? Yeah, I am, because it sounds badass, and suddenly, what, I'm not supposed (laughs) to like it? Well, right, I mean, this is the classic thing where this is a nice thing, let's not do it. Here's the deal. So 15-minute cities in its original conception is this thing from this Colombian guy in France, this professor named Carlos Moreno, who said, wouldn't it be nice if all your necessities in life were within a 15-minute walk of your house? And so your grocery store, your kid's school, some restaurants, etc. That does sound nice. Sounds like a nice thing. And so maybe we can do some urban design so that we... Now, it doesn't say you can only go within a 15-minute walk of your house. And it doesn't say your house will be an open-air prison or your neighborhood will be an open-air prison. But it's just a little urbanism. Sounds nice. So this is caught on in some European cities. And most infamously, it's caught on in the UK. And so this is kind of where it takes off. But basically, this idea of 15-minute cities, because it's now being used in some urban design in the United Kingdom, it's become kind of, it sort of hit hit the Anglosphere. And now, both in the United Kingdom and here in the US, 15-minute cities is becoming code for like George Soros lockdown prison. And so we're seeing this more and more. The Times had an article last week about how this professor, Carlos Moreno, is now getting all of these death threats. Because basically, so I've talked about how 15-minute cities exist in the real world. But 
in the right wing imagination, 15 minute cities, the idea is that essentially like we're all being prepared to be locked down again. Like you will be required to live within your zone and you can only leave your 15 minute zone with approval from the UN or what have you. It's not super thought out, but Kelly, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, interesting to see this kind of protest movement crop up in the UK, which to my understanding has something much closer to 15 minute cities than the US ever has. Like most people in the UK probably do live in a more cohesive community where you can walk and get your fish and chips and probably not get mowed down by Ford F-150. And yet this is something that a certain sliver of the British right has really mobilized around. There's a lot of sort of, I don't know, population control type talk around this. To your point, the idea that you won't be able to leave your zone if you're without express permission. Now, I do actually want to flag that like most Americans don't really travel anyway. So, I mean, what's the big deal in having a shop 15 minutes from your house? It shouldn't be that mad about it. But we've seen this tied into other conspiracy rich environments, places where people want to take a tragedy and turn it into something weirder and grimmer. There was a bit of this talk around the East Palestine derailment. We previously mentioned that there were conspiracy theories about how that train derailment and you know, chemical disaster was an effort to, I think, nuke Amish country. Conspiracy theorists are very hung up on the Amish right now. And so this is what they're saying. Well, we're trying to clear cut this rural area, make it impossible to live there and force people into the urban area of East Palestine. So I feel like it's still a conspiracy theory in utero, right? It's not totally there, but it does seem like it's got some potential. It can be shoehorned into other moments of crisis, other budding conspiracy theories. I think it's one to watch. That's a great point, Kelly. I mean, this reminds me a lot of Agenda 21, which was similarly sort of a UN, I hesitate to even call it a plan because it's sort of these vaporous things where it's like, wouldn't it be nice if we had lower emissions, if schools were better, this kind of stuff. And then a couple years later, Republicans find these things and they go, oh my God, Agenda 21. And then everything that happened is a part of the Agenda 21 plot. And so 15-Minute Cities is kind of being folded into that, where if you say, let's say the Biden administration wants to incentivize electric cars, and so then it becomes well, they want to keep us trapped within our 15 minutes. It's sort of the moment when this moves over from just like bike lanes in Paris into George Soros's plot seems to have been in England a few months ago when the city government there decided to make what they call low traffic cities where you can, let's say if you live in this county, you can drive your car into the city center. I think it's like 100 times a year. And they're going to have these cameras that if you go more than that, you're going to be fined. And so it's okay, you have to start paying the toll, essentially. Now, once you say the cameras, then it becomes, oh, God, they're going to be monitoring us. I mean, what's fascinating to me about this is it's not even like really a slippery slope thing. It's sort of like, what if we were on a whole different mountain? It's not like, oh, well, it's going to go from 100 trips into the city center a year to zero or 50 trips. It's what if this will be to imprison me and make me live in a pod and eat bugs. <laughs> you say, well, I wouldn't worry about that. That's not really the issue, right? That's sort of what I think a lot of these things on the right are ultimately these days is sort of you take what is a relatively basic policy proposal and one that people could say, oh, well, I want to go to the city center 200 times a year, but instead it becomes, but people don't really care about that, right? And so you have to sort of really ramp it up and this is part of the future lockdown prison. 
Yeah, absolutely. The only good thing I can possibly propose out of this is that we could see a square off of two of the most militant Twitter factions, which are conspiracy theorists and Twitter urbanists who are really into bike lanes above everything else. I think those are two really diehard groups. I think they have a lot to learn from each other. I wouldn't put it past the bike lane people to come on top. I think they have some great points and they are extremely passionate. Those are two like big dogpile groups. Whenever <laughs> anyone tweets like, oh, I hate bike lanes or whatever, they really get ratioed. There's actually a bit of factionalism here, which is that sort of the return to tradition people seem to kind of be into 15-minute cities because they want these sort of like village-like environments. And so they're tweeting, well, why not have these small communities? But just to give people a sense of what the 15-minute conspiracy theory is, there's this member of the European Parliament from Germany. She says about these 15-minute ghettos. It's not about making your lives easier. It's not about saving the planet. Yeah, ghettos is coming up a lot. It's about setting up the requirements to be able to lock you down in your assigned area. Pandemic lockdown, climate lockdown, or whatever other reason they come up with. Digital ID will be the key to enforcing it. So you can see how she's kind of adding in all these things. Lara Logan, who, of course, has gone completely off the rails, why is it so hard to get people to pay attention to 15-minute cities? Plan that spells the end of freedom and liberty for all except those in charge. I mean, this is really terrified of these 15-minute cities. Yeah, I think the fact that they have to list all the nice things about 15-minute cities and then also list some fake things like climate lockdown really shows why it might have a hard time getting traction the way Lara Logan wants. And because, hey, you know what? Most people like that. Can I walk to my kid's school? Awesome. Can I go down the street and get a carton of milk? Amazing. Most people aren't going to argue with that. And so to try and make this into a, oh, the next big conspiracy theory. I mean, it does have some potential when you saddle it up with all kinds of New World Order, tinfoil hat stuff. But the underlying premise, I think, is one that almost everyone is in favor of. So they're working with some challenging material here. Curious to see where it goes. I'd like to see him duke it out with the bike lane people. And now this poor French professor guy is getting all these death threats from American kooks. He's just saying, like, what if we, we had the bike lane? <laughs> and they're saying, get him, get him. He works for Soros. He works for Klaus Schwab. This is really one to watch. I think this idea of 15-minute ghettos is one we're going to be hearing a lot more about. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.